Hello and welcome to the Harvard EdCast, a series of conversations with thought leaders in the field of education from across the country and around the world. I'm your host, Matt Weber, and today we're speaking with the superintendent of Newark Schools, Christopher Cerf, to discuss how the state of schools are in Newark, New Jersey. Welcome to the EdCast. Thanks so much for having me. So Chris, a little bit about your vision for improving district schools across Newark and how you came into the position. A little bit of history for those who may not know your work or what's been going on in Newark. Well, sure. Uh, so I uh, started out in education. My first job after uh, college was teaching high school history, which I did for four years. And then I wandered a bit through uh, law school and a career in uh, constitutional law uh, and um, ended up back in public education. My last three posts were... Uh, well, I'm currently the superintendent of schools uh, in Newark. I previously served uh, for almost four years as commissioner of education for the state of New Jersey. And before that, I was deputy chancellor of the New York City uh, public school system. I think people probably don't know much about the makeup of Newark schools and kind of what you inherited and what you and your tenure hope to move things along in terms of what have been your main commitments and initiatives as superintendent, setting that agenda. Sure. Well, let's start with the main objective because we always have to keep that in mind. Uh, Newark is a city that serves approximately 50,000 children in uh, public schools of one sort uh, or, or another. And I measure success by uh, whether we are making progress towards the goal of giving every child an equal opportunity towards an education that launches them in the direction of success, whether that's through college, career, or uh, the like. A little bit about uh, the role that you've taken on in terms of prioritizing charter schools within a district. I think that there's a lot of uh, discussion both nationally here obviously in Massachusetts there was a big vote recently uh, question two uh, your take on charter schools in Newark and perspectives that people are having from the sort of parent perspective and then from the sort of uh, district-wide perspective well, well first there's a lot of mythology in, in this uh, area so I uh, am NOT an advocate for a charter schools in particular I'm an advocate for great uh, quality equitably accessible public schools, and I do consider charter schools to be public in the most important senses of the word. They are uh, open to all, uh, unlike, for example, Boston Latin or the magnet schools or uh, other schools that we comfortably call uh, public schools. Um, they are uh, 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 accountable to uh, a public uh, authority. They're created by a democratic body in New Jersey. It's the democratic legislature signed by the governor, they're not-for-profit, again, something that so. But on the other hand, um, you know, when I was commissioner of education, I uh, closed 10% of the charter schools. So I am an advocate for quality, free public uh, um, education. Um, in New Jersey, we have moved from uh, a system that one could describe as a sort of um, top-down monopoly system in which there was really one kind of school operated by a traditional school board, school system, and so on, uh, into a school uh, system where there are a number of options. Uh, about 30% of our students attend a public charter school. About 36% of our high school students attend a magnet school. They're terrific schools, by the way. They're actually getting better results than charter schools and results comparable to the state average. We brought in a, a bunch of traditional uh, public schools, uh, Eagle Academy for Young Men, for example, Bard uh, uh, Early College uh, uh, is another example. So um, I view a central part of our function is to bring in great schools and to make sure that existing schools are themselves great. 
you know, we talked to a lot of principals, a lot of sort of leaders in education. I think the superintendent's sort of role is very unique. It's, it's I don't know how you would describe it, but it, it's very much a political role. It's, it's, it's related to the sort of political makeup of the city and the, and the mayor, the district to district, but it's also very much connected to a management, a leadership. How would you describe this sort of role as being superintendent of Newark? Well, there are a number of dimensions, some of them unique. So Newark is a state-operated school district. It was taken over by the state in 1995, and I uh, took on this job uh, with the understanding that I would be working very hard to transition it back to, uh, to local control. Now, that's not just flipping a switch. It's making sure that when the district um, transitions back, um, that a lot of the good work uh, is embedded, and that there's a focus on children and not on, for example, political transactions. It's a complicated thing. I mean, there are uh, 5,500 adults who work for the Newark Public School System. It's about a billion dollar uh, enterprise. It's actually the largest employer uh, in, um, um, in, in the city. There are a lot of competing interests, and my goal, my mission, and frankly, my definition of success is that collectively we build an ethos around making every decision first and foremost around our principal goal of getting every child educated. Well, can't, can't mess with that with that ethos. Uh, a little bit about the challenges that you weren't expecting coming into this job. There's obviously the ones that are very apparent knowing the sort of history and the sort of machinations that come with being the superintendent in Newark, but a little bit about what was sort of unexpected in the role. And it could be good or bad. Well, I came over, I, uh, I came into the job uh, at the end of a very tumultuous era in the Newark public schools. And I think that tumult, by the way, was all but inevitable if there was going to be sort of significant transformational change. So I don't direct that at, a, uh, at my predecessor at all. I direct it at the fact that um, the system itself needed a, a great deal of work. We're talking about a system where 30% of the kids, if that, uh, were uh, reading on grade level uh, with very deep, uh, very deep uh, challenges. And you know the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting the same results. So I think everyone understood the change was, uh, was in, in order. Um, I'll tell you what I've uh, uh, found, uh, I think, the most um, educational uh, for me. Um, as a policymaker, as a commissioner, you know, you make a lot of broad pronouncements and you make a lot of policies and you make a lot of, uh, of uh, legislative uh, initiatives. But being a superintendent, you are much closer to that sort of magical interface between teacher um, uh, and students. And um, not to go on too long, but there is this false dichotomy that is developed in sort of educational reform between those who say that um, the real cause of our educational uh, underperformance um, is extrinsic to the school. It's poverty, it's culture, it's, it's the sort of byproduct of multi-generational challenges that many of our uh, children's families uh, have endured. And then there are those who say, you can't fix that, but you can make what happens in the four walls of the school better, better systems, better accountability, better curriculum, more rigor, better focus on quality teaching, uh, and so on. And really what I've learned is that that is a false dichotomy, that um, we cannot use the circumstances that our children grow up in as, uh, uh, as an excuse for not doing a better job within our schools. But at the same time, if we ignore the sort of concomitants of, the of poverty and the challenges many kids have and don't address that, um, we are never going to get the job done.
Yeah, I think treating education as, as very much an art and a science, having the humanity involved. Uh, last question, uh, the role that data plays in, in the way in which you assess things. There's a, obviously a lot of uh, perspectives on how much data should be involved in both student assessment, teacher assessment. Uh, how, do, how do you approach that, making sure that it's present, but making sure that it doesn't sort of overwhelm a lot of the decisions that you make? Well, there's a lot of mythology in this realm uh, uh, as, as, as well. So I've actually heard superintendents of nearby districts say they don't believe in data. They sort of know it when they see it, right? And I reject that uh, perspective. Um, I think uh, the biggest revolution in public education has not been charters or vouchers. Uh, it has been the notion of a standards-based education, that we uh, are going to define from the center what we mean by success. A child can read by the third grade. A child can do a certain level of mathematics by the time she or he graduates from, from high school. If you are going to have standards, then it, it is uh, an intrinsic part of that decision to have accountability or evaluations of whether those standards have, uh, have been met. And to ignore that data is to essentially engage in a delusional exercise of saying we have high expectations and high standards, but we're never going to evaluate whether, in fact, those standards have been met. Now, of course, that can uh, uh, mutate into drill and kill, into over-testing, and into anti-educational strategies. But to say that we should not care about whether a child can read by the third grade or that we can't measure that or that we shouldn't try to measure that strikes me as uh, anti-educational in itself. More broadly, um, you know, data um, is something that um, frankly had revolutionized uh, research in academia and also should have a real deep influence on what we do. Uh, for example, there are all sorts of things that everyone says uh, ought to make a big difference first thing that comes to mind is more professional development or early childhood education or mentoring, right? And the, the, the or community schools. Um, and the answer is not in the words or in the PowerPoint presentation, but in how well it's implemented and what the data tells you about the impact of those initiatives on learning outcomes. Got a, one last final question. You're a former teacher, now superintendent. How often do you get to get into the classroom, get to meet the students, get to hear their stories? Well, certainly every week I'm in, I'm in a school, and when I go to schools, I spend as much time away from the ceremonial stuff and uh, talking to teachers, talking to administrators, but not enough. I spend, uh, you know, as I say, there are about 100 buildings in, in Newark and 50,000 uh, uh, students, but I will tell you that every time I engage with a teacher, I come away just incredibly impressed at the commitment and at the sense of craft that most educators bring uh, to uh, what is very difficult and profoundly meaningful work. Uh, Christopher Cerf, the superintendent of New York Public Schools and, in my opinion, resident MythBuster, thanks for being on the EdCast today. Thanks so much. This has been the Harvard EdCast, a production of the Harvard Graduate School of Education. I'm your host, Matt Weber. Thank you kindly for listening.